Jonah chapter 3. If you're, if you're getting a little bogged down with the time and thinking, oh man, we're only halfway. I want you to notice I have two pages on Jonah chapter 3 and then only one page on Jonah chapter 4. And so we are a little over halfway. And if y'all are feeling good, we can make this one one little longer section and, and get out of here after it. So I'll, I'll pause and say, do y'all want a break? And then we can vote and uh, th- either the break or keep, or keep moving. Um, but we, are, we will have two pages on Jonah 3 and, and one on Jonah 4. Uh, let's pray for an unreached people group. David, you got one ready to go? David's going to lead us in prayer and then we'll, we'll dive in. So it is the Romani people. Looks like there are 43,000 of them. They're primarily Islam. They're in Iraq. And they are 0.0% Christian. Let's pray. Lord God, we love you. Uh, and we're so thankful for this opportunity to gather here tonight uh, and to learn more about you and your heart for the nations. God, I lift up the Romani people to you right now. God, they're 0% Christian. God, I pray that you would send out workers into the harvest field. God, that you would send people to go to this people group. God, to, uh, to live among them. God, to have a relationship with them. God, and use those people to save this people group, God, to reach this people group. Um, God, I pray as we are continuing in your word tonight, God, that you would continue to show us your heart for the nations, God, that you would uh, cut through to our hearts sharper than any double-edged sword, God, and that we would see your mission, uh, as Jim said earlier, through your perspective, not through our perspective, but uh, through the way you see it. Lord God, we love you and thank you for all this Amen. Amen. One thing, too, I wanted to mention before uh, Jonah 3. Um, we're doing something as a church that we have not really done church-wide ever before. And in November, we are sending a team up to Minneapolis to go to Engage Global. I think Logan has gone before. David's gone. A couple of us maybe have been there, but... We're excited to kind of open that up for the entire church. And Engage Global is kind of what we're doing tonight. It's just a team that does it a lot better than I ever could. Um, and if I could give you just a couple of words to describe that trip, it is fascinating, it is encouraging, and it is deeply challenging. And what they'll do is they'll take you through just different people groups, and they'll take you through the world of Islam, or they'll take you through the world of Buddhism, and you'll sit in a classroom and you'll learn about it, and then they'll say, hey, let's go to a Hmong market right now. We talk about animist culture, but right down the road is this group of people hanging out together. They have shops and restaurants and everything, and they're speaking their language and hanging out together. Let's go encounter them. Let's go eat lunch in that market, and let's go experience these people who don't know Jesus from, a, from an unreached people group. And then the next morning, you'll wake up, and they'll say, hey, let's go to a Somalian market, and let's see what it's like to be in a place where uh, people don't know Jesus, and they worship Allah. And it is an incredible experience, and it helps you understand just that God loves all these different people. And they're able to do this because Minneapolis is one of the most diverse cities in the world. And so we'll take two days in November. Our staff will lead the trip. Um, We will go up there. We'll rent cars. We'll go to the the headquarters. We'll be in class some, and then we'll have some learning experiences there. And it will 
it will open your eyes uh, to, to see the scope of the mission of God in a way that I can't do <laughs> standing up before you today and they teach the word uh, very well there and all that kind of stuff so again that's november it's like my goodness just nine months away we will have information about that we'll probably have some interest meetings about that and we're going to do two trips uh really within the next year just a little bit over we'll have one in november and one in march and so i want you to prayerfully consider uh, going to that we'll have a lot more information there but if you can feel your heart stirring for the mission of god i want to learn more about this i want to understand what it what it looks like to engage an unreached people group. I want to be a better welcomer here. My goodness, I mean, how many countries are represented at the University of Georgia? Uh, they say it at graduations, but the nations come here. We're praying for people groups in Iraq, but you know that there are people who grew up in Iraq who are in Athens right now getting their education, I'm sure. And it's just amazing. The nations have come to us. And so these are things that we need to be thinking about, even though we just go through our days uh, not, not uh, focused on the mission. Of God, Engage Global is a great next step for that. It's tonight's it's been beneficial to you, and we'll have more information about that to come. All right, Jonah chapter. Also, also, I was just going to say we, we believe in as a church, and so the, the church is going to pay. Yep. Um, yes, we'll pay for the training, and we're, we're we'll ask God to probably pay for the plane ticket to get up to Minneapolis. Um, and so we'll, we'll talk about, we'll have to book those and things like that, but relatively inexpensive trip, trip, I would guess 200 bucks maybe for plane tickets round trip, something like that. And again, they do a great job putting up. It's a very, I mean, it's uncomfortable and it's challenging, but it is a very laid back trip. It's very chill. It's very comfortable. It's a great time to hang out with people at church and just kind of do things together over a couple of days. It, it more than likely would be a Friday, fly up there, do some training all day Saturday, come back Sunday morning kind of thing. So, again, more information about that. But if you're interested, uh, be, be checking that out as we uh, keep announcing it. All right, we got Jonah out of the fish, and he is on dry land. Let's read verses 1 through 4 of chapter 3. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and proclaim to it the proclamation which I am going to tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three days walk. Then Jonah began to go through the city one day's walk, and he cried out and said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. first blank there is God recommissions Jonah to go to Nineveh. said recommissions. When was Jonah commissioned? Like, like first one or two, right? Go to Nineveh. Jonah disobeys. I'd rather die than obey God. And then God recommissions him. Praise God. The God of the Great Commission is the God of the Great Recommission when we disobey. And I wonder if there's somebody here tonight who would say, God called me to do something, but that was 10 years ago. Or that was five years ago. And I was in high school, and I, I heard that. It was called a ministry. It was called to go overseas. It was called a whatever. It was called a, to this certain type of ministry. But then I got caught up in the American dream. I got caught up in get the major, get the job, get the house, get the kids. And now I, 
I, I can't even begin to think about that because I have consistently with my life and just the arc of my story gone away from what God called me to do. And God recommissions his people. And when we repent and we obey, God says, all right, let's do this. And that is very encouraging that when we disobey, God will still extend and recommission and and re-challenge us to go. And I just love that Jonah 3 starts with the word came a second time. And so we see God opening, right, by his faithfulness, his said, his loving kindness, another door for Jonah to do ministry, even though the story should have gone differently. God can roll with the punches, right, and God's plan is still being accomplished despite our failures. It's interesting, second blank, is God's message to Nineveh was one sentence. It was one sentence. I wish Jonah, or I guess I wish Isaiah could learn from Jonah a little bit. God's message through Isaiah was like 66 chapters. And the message to Nineveh was recorded for us, one sentence. Now, it's not a message of Hesed. <laughs> it's not a message of hope. Verse 4, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Now, if somebody came to downtown Athens, stood by the arches and said, 40 days and this place is going to be rubble, we would laugh. We wouldn't even know how to respond. I don't think we would see the kind of response we're about to see here in verses 5 through 9. What happens to this one sentence sermon of judgment? Then the people of Nineveh believed in God and they called a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. When the word reached the king of Nineveh, he arose from his throne, laid aside his robes from him, covered himself with sackcloth and sat on the ashes. He issued a proclamation and it said, in Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let man, beast, herd or flock taste a thing. Do not let them eat or drink water. Both man and beast must be covered with sackcloth and let men call on God earnestly that each may turn from his wicked way and from violence which is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we do not perish. The message is not comprehensive. Jonah does not have some really cool illustration that he uses to persuade people like playing white noise over the speakers. It's one sentence. The people respond. That doesn't really add up. That doesn't really add up to me. How can one sentence change a city? And the answer is the power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is doing something in Nineveh that Jonah cannot do and that Jonah didn't see coming when he ran from God, right? He's sitting there saying, I can't go to Nineveh. These people are going to hate me. These people are going to kill me. This isn't going to end well. What was he not taking into account? The power of God. It's not just that God's worthy to be worshipped among all nations. We're promised he will be worshipped among all nations. And when we respond in obedience, God works in amazing ways. We're going to hit that. I'm sorry? Maybe he was taking into account God's power. That's the reason why I didn't do it. He didn't like it as much. There you go. 
there you go. That's a good point. Well, we're going to talk about that idea in just a, a few minutes, but I want to kind of spin it from this angle with your next blank. This revival is what God wanted for Israel. This revival is what God wanted for Israel. God's been saying through Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, if y'all don't, I don't think God said y'all, if you don't repent, if you don't repent, you're going into exile and you'll be disciplined. God didn't want to send the nation into exile. God never wants to pour out his wrath on his children, pour out his discipline on his children. He wanted them to turn back. He wanted them to repent. He wanted them to get into sackcloth and ashes and seek the face of God. He wanted this for his, the nation of Israel too. But when God's not getting it from his nation, he goes to another. We're going to see that in Romans in just a few chapters. God went to the Gentiles and offered the gospel through the apostle Paul because the Jews never got it. God grafts in when his people reject. And so we see some of that going on even here in Jonah chapter 3. Now again, we've talked about the Jewish mindset and what it meant to follow the law and obey God and be accepted by God. Man, I tell you, this blueprint for salvation and for uh, believing in God is pretty New Testament sounding. I want you to see the blueprint for salvation that we see in this passage. First one is that they hear the word of the Lord. They hear the word of the Lord. And we saw that in verse 4, right? The word of the Lord, very short, very succinct. Forty days and Nineveh will be overthrown. And then they respond to that word of God, verse 5, by believing in the second blank is repentance of sin. What do they do in verse 5? I mean, this is incredible. They believe in God. They call to fast. Hey, y'all, stop eating. We're not eating anything else. They put on sackcloth, right? And, you know, this is the... The image of, of burlap sacks, very uncomfortable stuff they're wearing. And then um, they, from the greatest to the least of them, and then we're told that they sat in ashes as well. Just all of these outward signs of, of what's going on inside of them. Of, we're terrible people. We don't deserve God's grace. Just humility, humility, humility. We see that the word reaches the king as well. And then he gives a command and says that we need to continue this repentance and maybe God will save us. That's the third thing we see is that then they call on the Lord for salvation. We see that in the king's edict, right? In verse 9, who knows? God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we will not perish. And so we see, again, this is the message of John the Baptist. This is the message of the gospel that we know. We were to hear the word of the Lord, repent of our sin, and call on the Lord for salvation. We see a New Testament Acts, you know, I think about Philip and Samaria, revival breaking out in Nineveh by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's just amazing what God's doing through this guy who ran from him, or doing through Jonah who ran from God and is now being used by God. Last thing we see in verse 10, let's read it together. When God saw their deeds, that they turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. Did God change his mind? No. He relented. It's a great word. 
It's a great word to describe the promises of God for judgment, the proclamation of God for judgment, and then it doesn't happen. What does God do? He relents. I got this kind of brain teaser of a question uh, presented to me the other day, and I want to ask it to y'all. But, (laughs) I know I thought it was funny. We would say, I'm going to start with a statement. We would say that God is glorified by pouring out grace on people. Amen? God is glorified by showing grace to people, saving them, redeeming them, all that kind of stuff. God is also glorified by pouring out His wrath wrath on people. Right? We saw that in Romans chapter 2. God is glorified by judging people. And when justice is done and when sin is judged, God is also glorified. God was glorified through the death of the Son as well. Which one is God glorified more in? Is he glorified more in pouring out grace on people? Or is he glorified more by pouring wrath out on people? <laughs> Y'all like, why don't you start with that? You can't do that at 828. It's a good question. I saw someone out here give me an incomplete referee. Even. Even. The same. God is glorified the same. Anybody else? Anybody just want to say wrath? I don't know to have fun. I don't know just be <laughs> wrath. Did I just say that's what you're gonna say? Yeah, I mean it's like. Um, yeah, I know it's how I feel. There you go, Madison. I think we like to say wrath for others, but grace for ourselves. <laughs> so like, Can you say that one more time? Wrath <laughs> 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 for others. <laughs> The question was presented to me by my close personal friend, John Piper, (laughs) when I was listening to his sermon. He posed that question, and every fiber of my being was doing the Matt Sorrow saying. And here's the question he asked. If it was the same, why send the eternal Son of God to be crucified and die so that he could pour grace out on sinners? God's desire, the New Testament tells us, is that none should perish, but that all could come to a knowledge of the truth. God is glorified more, and He desires more that we be saved so that we can worship Him for eternity. God wants all people to be saved. Yes, He is glorified through wrath, but His desire is to save all people. And I don't like that. We're honest. We don't like that. And here's why we don't like that. Because that truth propels us to a very uncomfortable mission. To tell all people about Jesus. To actually live up to the mission statement that's on our t-shirts and our website. To connect all people to grow in relationship with Jesus. Because that's what glorifies God the most. And I want to say it's the same. Because my, then my disobedience does not rob God of glory. But... My disobedience does rob God of glory if the mission is not being fulfilled because God is glorified through salvation. Mm. So almost it's not an either or, it's a it's before and after. Yeah, and you could definitely say that for the believer because we are shown that grace 
through through the wrath. And so, so if you don't have like the threat of a consequence, right? Where's the learning come in? Right. And so I guess the wrath to me is almost like a, you know, if you're thinking about it like father parent situation, mm -hmm. you know, if there's not a follow through or a consequence that you know is going to be followed through with, you're not going to learn to not do what you're not supposed to do. Absolutely. Absolutely. And the wrath is paid for for believers in the person of Jesus. And so that there is a wrath that is being exercised to uphold the justice of God. And then the grace is poured out on us so that we worship him forever. And that's the plan of God before the foundation of the world. Why? Because God's glorified through it. It's unbelievable. So I was right there with, oh, God's glorified the same. So I still got some stuff to learn too, y'all. God's mercy, God's wrath is not his desire for anyone. It's not his desire for anyone. This is God, what God wanted to happen in Jonah chapter 3. And Jonah is going to have trouble with this too in Jonah chapter 4. Romans 3, 21 through 25. I know y'all can all quote it because we just did it on Sundays. But let's go there. Answering the question here, how could God forgive on the basis of faith even before the cross? We get the answer in Romans 3. Starting in verse 21. But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in blood through faith. This was to demonstrate, here we go, his righteousness. Because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. And we've talked about this some, and we, we did this in Romans. But I am saved because Jesus died on the cross and rose. But the Ninevites were saved because Jesus would die and be, and be risen. They were saved the exact same way. And so that your blanks there is God could forgive Nineveh and maintain His holiness because of what Christ would accomplish on the cross. And that's hard. But even with what Allie's saying, wrath comes before grace. The relationship is actually flipped for Old Testament saints. And how that works, don't ask me. But it is. And God didn't just sweep the Ninevites' sin under the rug when they believed. But Jesus paid for their sin. Just like you paid for mine. Any questions else about chapter 3? You said God didn't sweep the Ninevites sin. Yeah, so it's not just like God, when He forgave the Ninevites, He forgave them in a way differently than He forgave us. He just swept their sin on the rug with no payment. Right? When Jesus died on the cross, He paid for the sin I committed in. 2020 and the sin of the Ninevites. 
eternal Son of God paid for sin for eternity. Past, present, future. That's a good way to put it. Yep. And that's what Romans 3 teaches us. It says, because Jesus was displayed as a propitiation because in forbearance he passed over the sins previously committed, telling us on the cross the previous sins were paid for as well. Very cool. What do we learn about the mission of God in Jonah chapter 3? God uses an imperfect man to proclaim His perfect Word, producing supernatural results. God uses an imperfect man to proclaim His perfect Word, producing supernatural results. And we talked about this a little bit. One sentence, and the city believes. And the city is turned upside down. And the city is forever changed. What is the ingredient there? It's the power of God. And church, this is the confidence that we take with us when we go. And when we preach the word. We have to hold on to this. You guys know how many times I'm like standing right behind that curtain? And I'm like, what am I about to do? These people let me preach. That's crazy dumb. You guys know how many times I think that? Like every week. And if I'm not thinking that, there's something wrong with me, honestly. I'm thinking about the week I had and how stressed out I am about dumb stuff and how tired I am. And, you know, Olivia and I probably didn't handle that situation the best way. And it was mostly my fault. I know. And I feel incredibly unworthy. And I walk out here and I think, this ain't going to be good. And those are usually the week somebody comes up to me and says, the Lord used you today. Because <laughs> it's not about me. I'm just a vessel of the perfect word of God. And when we are obey and we proclaim him and we lift his name above our name, he does supernatural things. He does things that we could never imagine. And... When you start to see that, I just want to encourage you that first step is the hardest. But when you start to see that play out in your life, you get addicted to it. And that's the best way I know how to describe it. Because you start to exercise your faith a little bit and you start to realize, wow, when I step on faith, God works. And so I want to take another step. I'll take a leap. I want to take two steps. I want to walk a mile with Jesus. And I'm willing to do this because God works. And it's not just in preaching the word, but it's in relationships and your talents and your time and your finances and all these different areas of your life where you look up and say, wow, God has actually grown my faith in this area because I've just started taking steps and seeing him work. And and, and unfortunately, I believe in churches, people sit for decades and don't take one step. We don't take one step for decades. That's my story. For decades. But then in a year, you take 10 steps and you see God do 10 things and then, and then you're set. So I just want to challenge you guys. You got to take that first step in faith. You got to take that step. You got to write that check that's scary and see how God blesses your finances. You got to have that conversation with somebody and you think they're going to think I'm stupid. And then they break down and say, thank you so much for praying for me. I texted a guy today. I just felt like I needed to pray for him. And his response to me, Liam, you do not know how well-timed this text was. That's all it said. It's out of nowhere. Why don't I do that more? Why don't I do that more?
God uses imperfect people to proclaim his perfect work, producing supernatural results. All we do, we water, we plant, God causes the growth. Church, I encourage you, whatever God's calling you to do, take that first step, see the fruit of it, celebrate it, and then do it again. And God will do incredible things in your life. All right, here's the other idea here uh, with the mission. That's we see in Jonah chapter 3. Jonah has been showed up twice. He's been showed up by the pagan sailors. They had a lot softer hearts than the prophet of God did. And now he's gotten shown up by the city of Nineveh. Here's a very short message. And then they all repent and they're fasting and they're in sackcloth and ashes and all this kind of thing. We're going to see Jonah still struggling with a hard heart. We're going to see that in chapter 4. And this is where we get into this idea of self-righteousness. And how dangerous it is to be a church person who's not taking steps of faith. And how dangerous it is to be religious and think you're okay, but you don't know who God is. This is why Jesus ate with sinners and prostitutes. And this is why he was mean to the Pharisees. And C.S. Lewis said it this way. Self-righteous hypocrites may be closer to hell than prostitutes. Self-righteous hypocrites may be closer to hell than prostitutes. God said it this way. Man looks at the outward appearance. The Lord looks at the heart. And when we are identifying people in our life, like who's your one, of who to talk to, we are looking at people on the basis of works. And exterior. And who is that person who's a really good person, good old boy, nice person? They look like me. Liam says I need to go share the gospel with them, but at least they like to play pickleball like I do. So I'm going to go get that person. We're looking for that comfortable person to share the gospel with, right? Person at school is right next to us, so I'm already friends with That person needs to hear the gospel. That's not what I'm saying. But what if that person that you're shying away from because they're not popular or they don't look like you is actually the person God's calling you to? What if God's got somebody he wants you to minister to that you're not ministering to them because they are different? And we judge and we say, I'm going to go talk to David because I like David. We can talk about music, right? That's what we're looking for. We're looking to minister to all the people in our hunting club or minister to all the people in our gym. What if God's calling us to go outside of our circle and calling us to go to somebody else? And just that's kind of missionally, but just individually, y'all, we cannot tolerate self-righteousness and we cannot tolerate religious attitudes and judging one another because we look better than one another or you get into that places in small group where it's not about your heart anymore. It's just about trying to look good for the other person and up. Oh, my time. Oh, you read five chapters this week. Well, I actually finished the reading plan in like a day. You know, like we got to get out of that. It's so easy. It's so easy. Y'all know we have those two questions on our Connect Group God. Sorry, I'm ranting just a little bit. Those two questions on our Connect Group God. How's your time in the Word been this week? Are you struggling with any sin? You want to know if your group's hot or cold? Depends probably on how you're talking about those questions. If you want to talk about how are you struggling with self-righteousness, how willing are you to confess your sin to somebody else? 
I'm not talking about, I tell my uh, student leaders, I tell Davis student leaders all the time, I'm not talking about the 40-year-old person coming in telling the seventh graders about the divorce. I'm talking about grabbing somebody you trust and being honest with them, tearing down the facade. We got to be doing that, church, or we'll be sitting in these seats and we're pretty close to hell, even more so than somebody who's on the outside. Sorry, rant, I'm done. Patience of God. 1 Timothy 2, 3 and 4. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior who wants all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. I cited that verse earlier when we talked about which one does God get the more, get more glory from, wrath or grace. I want us to go back for the New Testament to the same passage that we looked at before, Matthew chapter 12. Let's go there. Thirty-eight through forty-one. If you remember last session, we looked at uh, Jesus saying that his death and resurrection would be the sign of Jonah. Let's read the same four verses again. I want us to talk about a sign. I want us to talk about a sign. Look, uh, starting verse thirty-eight. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, "Teacher, we want to see a sign from you." But he answered and said to them, "An evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, and yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh, these are the ones in the sackcloth and ashes, will stand up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something is greater." Or something greater than Jonah is here. What are they saying? They're saying when we all stand before God, the Ninevites are going to say we were fasting in sackcloth and ashes because of the one sentence sermon from Jonah. And y'all had Jesus standing before you and you just wanted another sign. Hey, Jesus, break the bread again and feed 5,000. Hey, why don't you heal one more person and then I'll believe. Why don't you calm the storm one more time and then I'll believe. And what he's describing here is the person who's always looking for another miracle, looking for another sign. But it's never being united with faith by the proclamation of the word of God. And we can get into this trap too, church. God, show me, show me one more thing. God, tell me to go and then I'll go. And it's like, well, the word already says go. And we've got to understand that this is our sign. This is what we need for salvation, not just another miracle. I got two quotes there about the craving for a sign and not believing in faith. D.A. Carson's the first one. God never coerces belief. Jesus will not supply a sign so unambiguous that his opponents are compelled to follow him. That would override human freedom, which the Bible consistently stresses as something that God values highly. God will not show you a sign. That will be the fuel for the rest of your life. So you say, man, that one time, you know, my grandma was laying sick in bed and we prayed over her and, you know, we rubbed some, some lotion and, and, and essential oils and then she got up and she was fine. Now I'm going to give my life to God. What's the story of that person 10 years from now? Grandma died. 
I don't believe in God anymore. We got to have faith because signs only last for a little while. Last one, Donald Hagner. There is in principle nothing wrong with a desire for a sign from God. The request for a sign only becomes unjustified and intrinsically wrong when one is already surrounded by good and sufficient evidence one chooses not to accept. In that case, unreceptivity and unbelief are the root problem, and it is unlikely that any sign would change a person's mind. I wish I could write something like that, y'all. It's good. The desire for a sign is not necessarily bad, but it is bad when it is showing us that we're ignoring the evidence God has given us looking for a sign. What's the evidence He's given us? It's this book. And then the irony we see in Jonah chapter 3 is the Assyrians listened to the word of God through the prophets and repented. Israel didn't. The king of Nineveh was more godly than Jeroboam II. Any questions? Jonah 3. I would say Jonah did. Because, like, I just wasn't equipped to be that leader versus Jonah wasn't. And the Pharisees weren't really looking for any signs because they wanted to believe it was. Right. They were just like, do some more party tricks for us. Right. Jonah's got a miracle in Jonah's 1, 2, and 3. It wasn't really a sign, it was discipline. Right. right? I mean, it was miraculous, but it was served the purpose of discipline. It's really the comparison between the Ninevites and the scribes and Pharisees, and that they didn't—they didn't ask for a sign. They didn't bargain with God. They weren't asking a ton of philosophical questions like the Pharisees were. They, it was just a simple faith, just a simple humble faith. It's rare, but it's good. How y'all feeling about powering through? One last page. Go for it. If you need to grab some coffee or water, and uh, and. Uh, Refuel, you're welcome to do that. Um, I don't want to forego the, the two unreached people groups. And I've got them right here. Could I get some volunteers to pray for an unreached people group? Okay, let's go and do the first one to start us. All right, let's read the first four verses of chapter 4. Let's read the last sentence of 3.10 too. And God did not do it. But it greatly displeased Jonah, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord and said, Please, Lord, 
Was this not what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness. We know what word that is. And one who resent, relents concerning calamity. Therefore, now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for death is better to me than life. The Lord said, do you have good reason to be angry? Y'all notice I've got my little uh, little uh, labels for each passage. This is tantrum number one. <laughs> tantrum number one from Jonah. What a reaction to the grace of God. But what's the difference? This is not the grace of God for him. This is the grace of God for others. In the belly of the fish, when God saved him, he was, you know, man, God's good. Love God. Give me some more of that grace stuff. Not the case here. He is mad at God <coughs> for showing grace. Jonah, next blank, couldn't forgive what God had forgiven and Jonah blames his anger on God's compassion. That would be kind of an interesting fight with your spouse. Why are you angry right now? Because you're just so compassionate. You're just so good. And that makes me mad. That's what Jonah's doing here. And it seems idiotic. But it's teaching us something here. That we like, Madison said it. Grace for ourselves and judgment for others. The example I've always heard for this is all you got to do is talk about get pulling, somebody getting pulled over by a cop for a speeding ticket. You get pulled over by a cop. Please, Lord, just grace. How can I talk out of the situation to get grace? You see somebody else pulled over. What do you say? Got him. Right? That's what we say. Man, good job. God. And that spirit that we see when we see somebody pulled over is dangerous spiritually and it's alive and well when we think about the gospel. And this is amazing. In Jonah chapter 1 verse 12 Jonah wanted to die and in 4 3 he wants to die again. Tantrum Maybe we should say tantrum number two. <laughs> Lord, take my life, for death is better to me than life. He wanted to die because he didn't want to preach to these people. Now he wants to die because God showed grace to them. John's, or Lord's response, do you have a good reason to be angry? And then we get this kind of strange situation in verses 5 through 8. And we get to talk about the plan. Then Jonah went out from the city and sat east of it. There he made a shelter for himself and sat under it in the shade until he could see what would happen in the city. So the Lord God appointed a plant and it grew up over Jonah to be a shade over his head to deliver him from his discomfort. And Jonah was extremely happy about the plant. But God appointed a worm when dawn came the next day and it attacked the plant and it withered. When the sun came up, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on Jonah's head so that he became faint 
and begged with all his soul to die, saying, Death is better to me than life. Point there is God uses a plant to show Jonah his misplaced affections. To show him his misplaced affections. Jonah throws a little bit of a tantrum. Then he goes outside of the city to sit and watch what had happened in the city. And again, we're getting hypotheticals. We don't know this for sure. But most people would think he thinks Sodom and Gomorrah is about to happen. He thinks God's about to rain down fire on this city. And he wants to watch the fireworks. I've come all this way. I've done what God's asked me to do. I'm going to enjoy this. And this is his heart. And so as he's sitting there, now God knows he's not going to do it. I think Jonah deep down already knows God's not going to do it because he's already thrown one tantrum. But we're told that the, the son was, was, was hurting Jonah, right? Verse 6, it says it, it was causing him some discomfort. So God grows this plant up next to him to give him shade. And then, verse 7, God appointed a worm. I just think that's funny. Yes, sir. Like a lot of worm. I, I Captain. God appointed. I'm sorry, it's getting late, y'all. I'm getting silly. But God appointed a worm when dawn came the next day, and it attacked the plant, and it withered. And Jonah says, verse eight. I'd rather die because of this plant. Now, this is where we're getting into some of this irony, kind of comical. What is God doing here? And we're going to see God kind of call him out here in a minute. Jonah values this plant more than he does a city full of people. Jonah values this plant that is giving him a little bit of comfort than his people. And we laugh at it. But do we value certain material things more so than unreached people groups. More so than all of these cards that represent hundreds of thousands of people that need to hear the gospel. Do I value my car more than unreached people groups? Do I value the new pair of sneakers more so than Bible translation so that people can have the living and active word of God? We laugh at Jonah, who is extremely happy about his little... What, what is our little toy? What is our little shade tree that we actually love more so than... We, we see Jonah, and we laugh. If you watch the Bible Project video on Jonah, which I encourage you all to go home and do, see, see how well I did... He says at the very end of it, he says the book of Jonah is a mirror. It is God holding up our hearts in front of us and saying, this is who you are. And this is, I've called you to mission. And these are the things you're going to struggle with. Here are the heart issues that are going to stop you from living out God's purpose in your life. And we've seen again and again, what were Jonah's heart issues? It was a worship and idolatry of safety. 
and it was racism or us versus them. I'm better than these people. I don't need to, to hear them, to be with them. It's idolizing those things or just idolizing material things instead or really wanting people to be judged instead of God pour out his grace on them. I think it's a great question. I, I, would, I, would, I would ask you to write as you're taking notes, what's my plant? What's that thing that I don't want to give up to do what God's called me to do? Verse 9. I say God's message for Jonah and us. Then God said to Jonah, do you have good reason to be angry about the plant? And he said, I have good reason to be angry even to death. Then the Lord said, you had compassion on the plant for which you did not work and which you did not cause to grow, which came up overnight and perished overnight. Should I not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between their right hand and left hand as well as many animals? God uses the word compassion twice in verse 10 and 11. He says, which one should we show compassion on? Which one is worthy of God's grace? The plant or a city of 120,000 people? Next blank is don't misunderstand the mission of God. Don't misunderstand the mission of God. It's not about you. It's not about our comfort. It's not about my personal, like, material wealth or all these different things. It's not a prosperity gospel. Don't misunderstand the mission of God. It is about rescuing people. What is most valuable in God's eyes? People. That's why he said love God and love people. I mean, those are the two commands. And by doing those things, we fulfill the whole law. Why? Because the most valuable things are people. It's what God values. And we get it so mixed up and we've got to understand next point God's has said or God's grace is for you and all nations I thought this was interesting and I know our city is, is a little bit different than maybe most places from like a census data but because we have, we, Athens kind of balloons uh, with the students who come in and probably ask people, you know, what really is Athens? The census data probably doesn't cover me in Madison County. Nineveh had more than 120,000 persons. Athens, according to the most recent census, has 125,000 people. And so we're roughly a Nineveh-sized city. And I wonder if we're con we don't see the mission and we don't see the reason for our church and why we're here because we're distracted by plants. All right, let's look a couple of places at Jesus and the New Testament. Uh, I was feeling pretty good because, of course, as I'm studying for this, write your book, Jonah 1, I did first, Jonah 2, Jonah 3. And I'm like, man, there's so many good things in uh, the New Testament that, that point to Jonah and Jonah point to the New Testament. Like, this is going to be really cool. I was a little disappointed 
about the references in the New Testament to John chapter 4, followed by really impressed. And if you'll bear with me, both of these allusions are very cool. The first one is there's a loose parallel to Jonah 4, 2, and 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7. And when I say loose parallel, what I'm talking about is a linguistic similarity where they believe that the New Testament writers were almost copying the Old Testament to show people this is what they're talking about. Jonah 4, 2 and 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7. Let's read uh, Jonah 4, 2 first. I'm kind of holding both places open. This is when Jonah, uh, Jonah <laughs> I'm getting tired, when Jonah prays to the Lord and he says, Please, Lord, was this not why I had said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish, for I knew that you are, and this is the part, a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. So he's like yelling at God because God's so good. Similar order of God's attributes that we see in 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7. Love is patient. Love is kind. It is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. Does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. Is not provoked. Does not take into account a wrong suffered. Does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Bears all things. Believes all things. Hopes all things. Endures all things. Here's the point. If we don't ever get to the place where we truly understand that God's grace is for all nations, we will begin to hate God for his beautiful character. And we will begin to hate God for his holy character to where we won't even probably believe and trust in his character because we don't see how it plays out for other people. And we'll be like Jonah saying, God, I don't even really like you because I don't understand how you, your character operates in my relationships. And we think we can have all the benefits of the individual. We can enjoy God's character individually and never do missionally. And we'll probably end up being like Jonah in, in uh, Jonah 4 too. So we see a loose parallel there. Jonah 4 to 1 Corinthians 13. And then we see a stark contrast between Jonah 4 and Matthew 26 verses 36 through 42. Starting in verse 36. Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane and said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee and began to be grieved and distressed. Then he said to them, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. And he went a little beyond them and fell on his face and prayed, saying, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping and said to Peter, So you men could not keep watch with me for one hour. Keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Somebody want to take a stab at the contrast between Jesus and Jonah in this passage.
good. I probably used the word distressed. I didn't yeah, he said, uh, I'm going to use the word distressed. Jonah was wrongfully distressed. Jesus was rightfully distressed. In Jonah 4, Jonah's sitting there watching God's plan unfold and it's making him upset. He doesn't like God's plan. And so he's mad at God. God, why are you doing that? God, I don't like your character here. Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, sweating drops of blood. Do you think he was excited about how God's plan was unfolding for him? And what was his response? <coughs> Did he get mad? He submitted to the plan of God. Jesus is fully man, y'all. He's fully God. He's fully man. I can tell you what his fully man side was saying. I don't want this. Anything but this. He was about to ask Jonah where he got the ticket to Tarshish. But he submitted to the plan. And Jonah, the lesser prophet, is mad at God. Jesus says, not my will, but your will be done. What's the irony here? Jonah could accept God's grace for him, but he couldn't accept God's grace for Nineveh. We're at the finish line. But before we go, you and I are just like Jonah. Children of God called to reach all nations, tempted to see peoples like the Iraqi as the enemy. Will we understand the scope of God's mission or will we reduce the global glory of God to national or personal? And this is the plan, or this is the question and the challenge that each one of us faces. It's a big idea. It's a big idea. And I think for many of us, we walk out of here and we say, like, I'm willing to glorify God with my life. Like, I want to do that. I just don't know what the next step is. And we, we see the concept, but it's just like, how do I play that out? And I just want to challenge each one of you. Just continue to have these conversations in group. Have, have these conversations with, with somebody that, that you know who's here tonight, and you're just thinking, okay, how am I called to get outside of my circle and get on board with the mission and plan of God to preach the gospel to everybody I come into contact with? Or is God calling me to kind of go on a brand new direction in my life, a completely different direction where I was living, you know, to get this, you know, physical therapy degree or whatever it might be, and God's calling me to, to go. What, what is that going to look like? And I'm not there to answer that question for you, but we got to keep that conversation going. We can't walk out the store and just say, oh, Jonah was good. That was kind of fun. We're done with that. It's a big question. Will we understand the scope of God's mission? Or will we reduce the global glory of God to national and personal? I sat as a 13-year-old kid in my bedroom at night. Best way I know how to describe it is a hand was grasping my heart. That's the way I felt. I felt as if a hand was grasping my heart. And I felt that for about a week. I could not sleep until finally I surrendered to the call of ministry. And I said, all right, God, I'll do whatever you want me to do. Now, when I did that 13 years ago, it's crazy. That was half my life ago. I did that 13 years ago, James. Quiet. I didn't know I was going to be standing here in an auditorium in Winterville preaching on Jonah. 
know that. But there's a step, and then a next step, and then a next step, and a next step, and a next step. And I'm not done stepping. You're not done stepping. Daily, hourly, we do this. God, what are you call me to do? You just put, put, put your life out there. I don't know where it's going to take you. It might be some auditorium and, I don't know, somewhere crazy like Madison County. Who knows? But it's just saying, Lord, you just got to surrender. Say, Lord, where are you calling me to go? Will we understand the scope of God's mission or will it just be personal? Malachi 111, I referenced it earlier. This is God's desire. This is in the Old Testament. My name will be great among the nations. From where the sun rises to where it sets, in every place, incense and pure offerings will be brought to me, because my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord Almighty. I pray that tonight we can all just take a next step of getting on board with God's plan. Where is Nineveh located today? Iraq. Anybody notice something about our unreached people groups tonight? They're all in Iraq. The more things change, the more things stay the same. We are called to go to nations like Iraq. The last one I've got is the largest unreached people group in Iraq. The Iraqi people. 17.1 million people. Somebody want to pray for them? We'll be done.